Uh, first of all, I'd just like to thank you for, for coming here. I, I find it admirable and encouraging that you would come on a Friday afternoon to spend three hours with Augustine and me. I assume the attraction's largely Augustine, but even so, it's, <laughs> it's impressive. Um, what I intend to do for, I, my, my feeling is it's not gonna take a great deal of time, um, although since I didn't write it out, and given the way academics being what they are, it may take a very long amount of time. But my idea is simply to give you um, some general rubrics for thinking about uh, Augustine's ethics, uh, which we can begin to fill out in more detail uh, as you please when we look at particular passages. Um, let me begin just by situating Augustine for you. Uh, Augustine uh, was born in Thagast, which is a fairly small town in Roman North Africa in 354. Uh, the closest, well, relatively big city was Madoras, but the, the real uh, city of fascination for him uh, in Africa was, was Carthage. Augustine spent most of his time in Africa. Uh, he did have a, a brief and influential sojourn uh, in Milan and Rome where he underwent his conversion. Um, we'll have to talk about what the nature of that conversion is as we try to, to ponder his thought. Uh, he, uh, he's a figure in a period that historians now tend to call late antiquity, which bears an interesting and somewhat complex relationship to patristics. Uh, more or less, late antiquity is the invention of historians. I find it a useful category because it begins to be less enthusiastic about separating theological from philosophical figures in the period. And I think one of the difficult things about studying Augustine, whether it's the ethics or other parts of his philosophy, is that we tend to be too confident of the distinction between philosophy and theology when we, when we approach him. Not that he didn't have the distinction, he did, uh, but it's rarely the one that we apply to him. It's not the one that Thomas had, and certainly not the one that is more familiar to us from the European Enlightenment. Uh, what the distinction is for him is something I'm actually really still trying to work out, uh, but I want to have the freedom in reading him to situate him within uh, late Roman philosophy. And I think uh, one, of the, uh, one of the things that being at Villanova has helped me, has afforded me to do, is given me the, actually the pedagogical space not to treat Augustine as a medieval figure. Uh, when I taught him at Colgate University, uh, I had the responsibility primarily for the medieval material, and he was uh, usually pitched not by me, but this is how it was pitched to me to pitch him. It's more or less the warm-up ban uh, for the medieval tradition that, of course, culminates with, with Thomas. Uh, I don't think that's a, a, a useless way of approaching him, but it, it, is, it has its own limits. And uh, to understand his ethics, I think it's very useful to understand something of the late Roman transformation of uh, Hellenism and particularly the, the fascination that philosophers of Augustine's day had for uh, the autarkic or self-sufficient life. Uh, to study philosophy was in large part to develop the skills of discipline and reflection 
that ultimately honed the soul on what was most valuable for the soul to focus on. And given a sufficiently successful amount of discipline, uh, many of the philosophical schools converged in the thought that uh, more or less what was valuable was what was, was what was under a person's control. And so there was a convergence between um, an, an accurate illumination of reality uh, and the capacity to negotiate that reality as a free agent. Uh, Augustine is enormously influenced uh, by this ideal that he, he, he largely gets through Stoicism, but Platonic notions of reality finally color what he imagines uh, the Stoic ideal of autarky to be. Uh, and as he develops in his thinking, uh, he comes to be disillusioned with the autarkic life on two broad grounds that I, I don't think are, well, they're not entirely compatible grounds. And the tension between them uh, is of, I think, some considerable interest for trying to fathom his ethics. One is that the life of philosophical self-sufficiency is simply an impossibility. We're just too screwed up into our, in our psychology to imagine there will ever be sufficient consistency in the way that we desire and love uh, to pull off a life that is stable enough to avoid all the vicissitudes of temptation and disappointment that a human life is heir to. Now, that kind of critique of an ancient ideal of the good life is still basically affirming it as an ideal. And uh, you can find many statements of, in Augustine more or less falling under his otherworldliness that suggests that, well, it would be certainly nice to have this kind of integrity of virtue, but um, we can't. But if we could, it'd be a great thing. Uh, the other, I think, way in which he became disillusioned is, is more radical and actually, for my, to my mind, more interesting and gets to the, to, the, to, to the fascination of Augustinian ethics, which this ideal is not simply unrealizable, it's actually undesirable. That it pitches a notion of selfhood that is too narrow, and perhaps at the end of the day too mean-spirited, really to want to affirm. And there are various ways in which this um, this aspect of Augustine's critique of autarkic ethics comes out. Uh, one of the more prominent ones is his affirmation of the appropriateness of grief in the most philosophically cultivated life, which is why I recommended that we look at book four of the Confessions, where Augustine gives a fairly detailed analysis of a particular experience of grief. But more to the point, uh, he's actually being very self-critical of the way he's expressing grief. But the alternative to that expression is not to cultivate a point of view in which one is invulnerable to grief, 
what I pointed to in one experience is losses in a way that recognizes the actual human condition of mortality, its joys and its griefs. Um, Augustine is one of these figures who tends to be divided in two, an early and a late. And I wanted to say something uh, about that. Augustine himself uh, encourages this division. Uh, I want to start uh, my reflection on this aspect of looking at Augustine uh, with a few thoughts. I don't know if you, you, I, if you know the St. Augustine Center, You've, you surely have seen the two paintings that greet you when you walk into the room. There's Augustine on your left side is the philosopher, and on the right side is the theologian. Uh, and a couple of years ago, I, I, I had an occasion just to write a little bit of description of those portraits and, and what they signified, and I just want to read it to you um, for now. This is actually the only formally written part of my presentation, and so probably the only really controlled part. Uh, when you walk into the main entrance of the St. Augustine Center for the Liberal Arts, you will notice on your immediate right and left a pair of portraits of the center's eponym. One portrait, called the left hand of Augustine, depicts a younger, philosophically inclined man, somewhat unsh unshaven, of course, uh, having that fashionably intellectual three-day stubble look and intent on exploring his inner profundities throughout a long night. The moon is streaming through the stone arch of his cramped cell, and he writes by candlelight. We can read these words on the opening page of his manuscript, Factus Arum Itza Mihi Magna Quaestio. It is a line from the fourth book of the Confessions, where Augustine is remembering a devastating but hardly trustworthy experience of grief. The line can be translated, I made myself into my own great, great question. At the philosophical Augustine's feet, we see another manuscript, this one open to a line from Plato rendered into Latin, quaeror est discera memoria est. Now, there is no verb quero in classical Latin. Probably the artist meant to abbreviate the verb quero, in which case the line would read, to seek and to learn this is memory. There is a deponent verb queror, which means to complain or lament. By suggesting a verb form that slips in between quiro and queror, the artist has added a wonderfully Augustinian sentiment to Platonic anamnesis, to seek, to learn, and to lament. This is memory. Of course, my colleagues in philosophy at Villanova would no doubt be delighted to see if they care to notice on their everyday journeys to the left side of the building that Plato, and by extension the whole of the philosophical tradition of wisdom, has been rendered quite literally into a footnote to Augustine. <laughs> but I've only been talking thus far about the left hand of Augustine. On the right, you will see an older but quite vital man, clean-shaven with a neatly cropped head of gray hair. He has exchanged the toga of the leisured philosopher for the vestments of a priest. It's daytime, and the sun is streaming through this Augustine study. We see him pointing to the opening page of his manuscript, but his gaze is directed elsewhere to some above and beyond that is out of view. The line he points out is a verse from the Psalms, in lumine tuo videbibus lumen. In your light, we will see light. At the foot of the priest's feet, we see another manuscript. It presents us with a line from Augustine's, Augustine's massive commentary on the Psalms. Nusta verius 
Sol Justitiae Christus. Our truth, the sunlight of justice, is Christ. If philosophy is a footnote to Augustine, this is only because Augustine is a footnote to a revelation that sustains and illuminates all words of wisdom. Uh, those two Augustines, as they are portrayed in the portraits, certainly raise this rather broad question of what the philosophical and the theological Augustine have to do with one another. Um, I'm going to give you two ways of, of thinking uh, of the of a point of crisis or turning in Augustine's life uh, that I think are relevant, finally, to trying to get some understanding of how his ethics developed. Both of them were suggested by him. Uh, in his conversion that he describes in Book 8, the conversion is not to Christianity per se, at least not the way he described He was already convinced of the truth of the Christian witness before he ever walked into the Garden of Milan and broke down because he felt like he couldn't will what he most wanted to will. And he was convinced that the church was the proper vehicle for pursuing a devotion to Christ but he was insisting on holding himself to the version of Christianity that he took the Apostle Paul to denominate as exemplary but not required. And that's the form of Christianity that renounces uh, sexual love and family. Uh, this is really what he found most difficult to give up. And he describes to a very uh, memorable and psychologically uh, complex reflection his division between um, a form of will that kept him tied, erotically tied, affectionately tied uh, to the beloveds of the world, and particularly affirming his ties to women. And the other will uh, that was leading him in some way uh, to a devotion to Christ and whatever implications that would have to the loves that in some way he wanted to transcend most mundanely by living a celibate life. But then many questions get uh, raised about what, what is it about his conception of the higher life that, for, in his mind, required this form of sacrifice or transformation in his desire that would allow him really to change, a different, really to change his, his manner of life. At this point, uh, he, um, he, had, he had had a child uh, with a woman he was with uh, for, for many years, uh, some 13 years. Uh, until his mother finally convinced him that sh this was really n not going to do in terms of a suitable marriage uh, partner. And given the fact he was becoming more successful in his career as a Christian rhetor, he had gotten the position of the, of the, of a, of the orator in Milan. Uh, he was doing well. 
Um, so, uh, you know, he, um, there was a, there was a certain kind of worldly Christianity that he was, that he was moving into, that he was becoming increasingly dis disillusioned by, uh, but felt that he couldn't, um, couldn't break from it. His idea was that, of course, that, you know, were he to break from it, his, his, his image of himself was not to become a very busy bishop in a port city in North Africa adjudicating all kinds of claims, um, mainly to try to keep the Roman Imperium from being too repressive among the people uh, uh, in his charge. He really imagined himself living relatively a life of leisure, uh, contemplating philosophy. Uh, that really didn't work out for him. Uh, but he, in his own mind, still left us with the, the vision of a life that, on the one hand, seems more devoted to uh, the family uh, and matters of, um, of, of mundane affection and some kind of higher calling, which seems at, at least in tension with this life that uh, he was originally going to leave behind for leisure, but ended up leaving behind in order to assume a position of leadership in the church. So love of Christ, love of women, are is one of, I think, the ways in which the turn in his life can be cast uh, that will raise some illuminating issues. Uh, the other way really had to do with his thinking about the involvement of God in the shaping of the human soul towards its ultimate end. By his own reckoning, it wasn't his plan to be a bishop. It wasn't his plan to be responsible for teaching scripture to a congregation. When he returns from Rome back to North Africa, shortly after the death of his mother, uh, he ends up uh, being more or less inducted as a priest in Hippo and eventually getting the responsibilities as Bishop of Hippo. And he feels responsible for knowing scripture better than he has known it up to this point. And so he starts reading rather intently in Romans. And at a, in a certain series of questions prompted by a priest by the name of Simplician, who was a mentor for Augustine and was ultimately the successor uh, of Ambrose in Milan, although uh, briefly, because Simplicius was, a, was an older man. Simplicius asked uh, Augustine to think about various questions coming from Paul and, the, and the, the passages that were, ended up being most important for his reflection came from Romans 7 and Romans 9. Uh, Romans 7 was the part of Paul where Paul talks about uh, not being able to will the good that he wants and what he can't does, he does will. 
Paul's avowals of internal conflict. At this point, Augustine sees that portrait of Paul as a persona that Paul is wearing. That at this point in Augustine's thinking, someone who is truly sanctified, who has some kind of philosophical um, poise, doesn't suffer from the kind of internal conflict that Paul is describing in Romans 7. Eventually, Augustine will come to think of that view as erroneous. That the, the work that the divine does in drawing the soul towards its ultimate goal doesn't preclude internal conflict. The second part, the, the other question from Romans that Augustine was thinking about, and, and his response to this question he did describe as a revolution in his thought, it had to do with Romans 9, where Paul is talking about God's favor of Esau over Jacob. I mean, of Jacob over Esau, the younger brother over the older brother. A meditation on God's favor of one person over another or one nation over another nation. Augustine came to the conclusion, and given the way that he writes this question, it seems that he came to it somewhat reluctantly, that there really is no basis in human merit for why one person would end up being drawn towards redemption and clarity of vision and a good life, and another person wouldn't. Why one kind of internal conflict simply remains mired in conflict and another kind of conflict is actually resolving itself towards something that is unconflicted, even though we may never see it get there finally in this life, it is headed in that direction. Um, I think for Augustine's readers, particularly his contemporary readers, I mean his, his modern readers, our contemporaries, this is the moment where the theological Augustine sort of takes over from the philosophical Augustine. The theological Augustine seems to have such a thick conception of what it means to follow a divine calling, what is there left for the philosopher to do in the way of earning that life or living that life so that it can be properly be attributed to the person that's living it. Uh, the text that many people like to teach here on Augustine is De Libero Arbitrio, on free choice, on free will. This is prior. This is a text that's prior to this exegetical turn. 
Um, Augustine had felt this was the, you know, the, I, th I think the, really the, the most important turning point in his theological reflections. From then on, he's going to begin to think about human redemption, rehabilitation, within the context of a sovereign divine will. Um, I'm, I think that this, this turn does raise a rather profound question in terms of what the relationship is between theology and philosophy within Augustine. But I would encourage you not to rush too quickly to the conclusion that the thickening of his doctrine of grace is somehow an abandonment of his philosophical ambitions. I think he saw it as finally an acknowledgement of really what it meant to pursue a life of wisdom. Virtues are going to have to do with the cultivation of gratitude within the ethical life. which is going to be central rather than peripheral to what the experience of a virtue finally is for him. Um, if I were to try to give you Augustine's ethics as succinctly as possible, I, I would emphasize these three elements. The most important issue for Augustine in ethics concerns how the soul is oriented. What's the quality of the love that colors the human experience of desire? And he sees one of two basic possibilities here. Either, is, either the soul is oriented towards the love of God or it's not. He sees this way of looking at ethics as continuous with the ethics he's inherited, from his time, some of it pagan, some of it Christian. It's ethics where the fundamental question is what the summum bonum, or the highest good is. complicating the search for the highest good is a disposition within the human soul to resist its own happiness, to resist its own fulfillment. There is something self-defeating within human beings that works against their own happiness. This is the mystery of sin, which is all the more mysterious because we are, Augustine argues, the architect of this disposition to be self-defeating, though it's hard for me to imagine 
we could be the architect of the disposition under the terms I have just described it. But sin as a disposition to be um, self-undermining, it's not terribly far from what Kant called radical evil, is a central piece of Augustine's ethical vision. And the third part of it is given the disposition to resist the highest good, uh, there is need for a mediating, mediating conception of divinity that can break the stranglehold of this disposition of human attention, and that's the mediation of Christ, an incarnate God. Uh, I associate two primary puzzlements with this ethical vision, although I know there are more, but I'll give you at least these two. One concerns the origination of sin, the origin of evil. It seems impossible to motivate. What in us would have the disposition to separate itself from the source of its life and happiness, given that intelligible human action has to be intelligibly motivated? It's certainly logically possible to act against your own good. You just won't be intelligible to yourself if you're acting under that description. Augustine doesn't want to say that it's misapprehension or ignorance that causes us to will what is not, what is the absence of good as if it were good. So that seems to put him in a really difficult position in terms of really motivating what causes the soul to abandon its connection to the divine. And I gave you the reading from book two of the Confessions to begin to give you a sense of the complexity of Augustine's thought on this matter. It's not just his complexity. I mean, there's a certain, there's a certain conception of evil or responsible evil where I think really pretty much anybody's stuck with this question. You know, whether they decide at the end of the day to assume a theological framework or not. Uh, the other mystery really concerns the, the nature of grace. Uh, how does it transfer from divine to human? If Augustine is really going to emphasize the thickness of grace, that the very desire for the desire for good is something that's divinely bestowed. How does what we're given finally becomes, how does it finally become ours? How do you move from being a receiver to being an agent in Augustine's way of thinking about things? He always insisted that grace was the 
something that made freedom possible. It was not something that was really contrary to freedom. Um, it's not entirely clear how to work that one out. The last thing I want to, last brief set of remarks I, 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 wanna, I want to offer you know, concerns the description of um, Ethics 2050 and how Augustine um, fits within that. I was particularly interested in goal one, which I have to say is, is, is beautifully and carefully written, um, where I take it that the focus of the course is, is, is going to have a thicker emphasis on moral anthropology uh, or moral psychology than is the case with some conceptions of modern ethical thought. Um, and I'm not going to debate the conception of the modern. I mean, I do think I understand where the description's coming from. And I do think it's true that uh, if you're studying um, ethics through Augustine, uh, it's fairly hard to make a sharp distinction between the good and the right. And in order to understand what the good is, you're going to go, have to go fairly deeply into the question of how a good is realized in a human being, both individually and insofar as we share a common uh, human nature. Uh, in the City of God, book 10, Augustine gives a very uh, brief, but I think telling story of the history of philosophy as he's inherited it. And he sees it primarily as a Greek uh, contribution. Doesn't give the Romans much credit. Uh, it starts out as two parallel schools, the Ionian school very interested in the question of what can be known of the world and the technique there being to look for a common material principle that can explain material diversity. And you contrast this with the Italian school, the Pythagoreans, where there's a similar attempt to explain diversity uh, through the appeal of fundamental principles but more willingness to see this in mathematical terms. The materialism isn't quite as front and center. He sees this aspect of philosophy as speculative, but insofar as it's merely speculative, hard to resolve. At the end of the day, how do you tell whether it's Pythagoras or Thales or Anaxagoras that's giving you the correct picture of the world? In Augustine's story, Socrates comes along as an ambiguous figure. And the ambiguity is this. One Socrates is simply bored by all the empty speculation. And so he turns philosophy towards the practical life. Let's stop thinking so much about what is the case. Let's just learn what it is that we should, how it is that we should live. The other Socrates is, is, is more concerned that unless we purify our way of interacting with the world, we have really no shot of seeing it clearly. 
who we are and how we comport ourselves is not irrelevant to what it is that we can see or not see. Augustine's not sure which represents the, the real Socrates. But he is sure that Plato is very much interested in a synthesis of the theoretical element of philosophy and its practical side. And, in, and for Augustine, Platonism really is the, the high point of the history of philosophy. And it's, I mean, it, this is a question I've wondered about. I don't know what the answer is uh, to it. Uh, it's not entirely clear to me whether Augustine thinks of Christianity as a further stage in the development of philosophy or something that more or less showed you really what the Platonists were trying to get at, but you can't really understand it until you understand why you need a certain kind of mediation between the divine and the human, certain kind of purification of, of point of view. But his notion of, Plat notion of Platonism is that there is a form of uh, catharsis of desire that opens up a person to really wanting to know what is the case. And that will reveal to the person really what the divine basis of reality is. And that will um, make that, dis that will finally quiet and make disappear that disposition to be self-defeating. Now, the Augustine I just described is basically seeing philosophy as is seeing the, 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 the practical dimension of the philosophical life really come from a clarification of the deepest way of point of view, I think fits very well with the broadly eudaimonistic emphasis within ethics. Here's the qualification, and I'll sort of end my remarks with this. Um, And this goes back to what I, I had said in the beginning, sort of the Augustine who, who seemed to have an ambivalent relationship to the philosophies inherited, particularly the ideal of the autarchic life, the life that is finally self-sufficient, that puts together its, its vision of what the world, with the way of being in the world that it has some mastery of. Eudaimonism, represents itself in part of, of really looking what is going to be most fulfilling to the self. And it tries to take as generous, as rich, as realistic, as profound an approach to what it means to have a self as it possibly can. It isn't clear what notion of self comes out of Augustine. This is, and this is his, his, his rather complex relationship to, to Platonism. And finally gets to that piece in the encapsulation of the ethics, which is, uh, I think for him, the most important, but for philosophers, really the hardest to come to turn with. I mean, what does it mean to say that the incarnation of God in a particular person, in a particular time and place, is actually 
matters to ethics. Um, when Augustine starts talking about the self, it's not simply the language of fulfillment that he uses. There's a way in which the self always ends up being outside of itself, and I particularly think here of the discussions of memory in uh, Book 10 of the Confessions, but also you can actually talk about the way in which the Confessions open. The self is made to be in relationship to the divine, but the divine and the human don't fit together well, or neatly, or congruently. That they're to relate to the divine in, in, in uh, many ways is to be released from a vision of self, rather than to be invited into one. Which is not to say at the end of the day, uh, August, I think Augustine thought of his ethical framework primarily is, is eudaimonistic. But the way that he talks about the, the self um, suggests that his relationship to the traditions of eudaimonism that he inherits you know, largely from pagan traditions of philosophy uh, is, uh, I think, more complicated even than he's, than he's prepared to, to admit. And I will leave it um, at that. Thank you very much. Thank you.